You are listening to the Less Drama, More Mama podcast, episode 70, Raising Good Humans with Hunter Clark Fields. This is Less Drama, More Mama, the podcast for moms who want to feel calm, in control, and confident about how to handle anything life throws their way. You're ready to go from feeling frazzled and disrespected to feeling calm and connected. This is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Pam Howard. Hey, Mama. Welcome to the podcast. It is the last month of 2019. And so before we get into today's interview, I want to tell you why this month, December, is the perfect time to hire a life coach. Most people wait until January to hire a life coach after they've resolved to be more patient, playful, and present with their kids. But what if you could feel that way even before the ball drops on New Year's Eve? What if you secured a spot in my coaching program before the other moms even scheduled their mini sessions with me? I am committed to helping you end 2019 feeling great and making 2020 your best year ever. Are you committed to that? I want you to imagine how amazing it will feel to give your kids the gift of a happy and calm mom. Imagine how you'll feel at this time next year when your resolution won't include being more patient, playful, or present. I only want to work with people in 2020 who are all in and fully committed to getting the results they want. If you're fed up with trying to figure out this parenting stuff on your own, and you're ready to do what it takes to make a change, then I invite you to sign up for a free mini session with me at lessdramamoremama.com forward slash mini. Let's do this. Okay? Yes. All right. I'm all fired up now. (laughs) Today is the 70th episode of this podcast. And every 10th episode, I interview someone fabulous to share with you. Today is no exception. Hunter Clark Fields is known as the Mindful Mama Mentor. She's the host of the Mindful Mama podcast, creator of the Mindful Parenting Membership, and author of the just-released book, Raising Good Humans. Hunter has over 20 years of experience in meditation and yoga practices and has taught mindfulness to thousands worldwide. She helps parents bring more calm into their daily lives and cooperation into their families. I'm so excited for you to meet Hunter, and toward the end of the interview, you can find out how to win a free copy of her book, Raising Good Humans. So please enjoy my interview with Hunter Clark Fields. Welcome to the show, Hunter. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here too. Tell us a little bit about how you became the Mindful Mama Mentor. (laughs) Well, I think my work with parenting in some ways came from like me doing it really, really badly. (laughs) I was really bad. You know, I was kind of like one of those people who was a little, you know, good at being fairly good at things, like a good student doing stuff. And then I was really just failing miserably at parenting. Like I was losing my cool and it just felt like it was this the most important thing in my life. 
you know, this felt like the most important job in my life. And I really wanted to be, you know, step forward and be the kind of person that I knew my daughter deserved. So I, I saw my anger come up. I saw that I was scaring my daughter, all of these things. And so I dove deeper back into my mindfulness practice, which is something I started before I was pregnant. And I started diving into kind of a intense course of learning and creating my, you know, really being very diligent about my self-care and my meditation, and also being very intentional about bringing it into my life. And it kind of brought people on that journey with me um, as I started blogging about it. Hmm. Yeah, I think that most of us who find ourselves in this parent coach position have a similar experience, right? We're like, what is going on? (laughs) Like, we did not expect parenting to be this way. And it's really hard. And then we kind of figure it out and we want to teach it to other people. So one of the things I was looking at your website and your about page, one of the things that you write on there was that your children were like little Zen masters, showing you things that you had to work on. And, and I really liked that sentence. And I was wondering if you could kind of, you know, talk more about that. Like, what were the aha moments when you saw in your children what needed to be healed or the stuff you needed to work on? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the first big thing I saw was my anger that, that came up. And that was the big, it was just roaring into the room and it really needed to be healed. And I could see this, like the pattern, the pattern from, you know, me being a child and my father's anger. I could really see that and, and feel how, how it felt so unacceptable to me. So that was like the first big one that I was like, oh my God, this is either going to just beat me down or I'm going to learn from it. So I really vowed to, to learn from it. And I had to really work with compassion for myself. This mm. is hard and it's hard. We have such high expectations of ourselves. And then, you know, as I started to like kind of dive back into my mindfulness practice, I started to get calmer and I'm like, okay, this is better. Good. And then I would say something that was maybe something my parents had said to me as a kid or just something that's in the culture that just wasn't so skillful. And it would be like, kaboom, it would be like this time bomb had like gone off again. And so I really started to see that mindfulness, right, has is incredible. It's incredible in so many ways, like this ability to shape and change the brain, literally change the neural networks in the brain so that you become less reactive, which is amazing, right? It's like this sort of amazing brain hack, I think, with zero side effects, which is so cool. But it's not enough because calming down and being less reactive is not enough. Like we have to then know kind of what words to say, how to communicate with our kids so that we can create cooperation with them rather than kind of the old unskillful words that cause resistance and resentment, like orders and threats and things. And then I would, then as I started to learn that and and dive, you know, I'm diving into my mindfulness, I'm learning about these communication skills and getting trained. And then I'm seeing as my, um, my second daughter came along and I'm seeing the oldest child talk to hearing the oldest child talk to her sister and barking orders at her. And I'm like, Oh, you're like, that's me. I know I had the exact same experience. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. So it's like, here's your issue and here's your issue and here's your issue. And like, you may know kind of cognitively in your head, what 
you how you want to be and how you respond and things like that. But it's a whole different world to kind of practice it, right? Like we don't get better at tennis by reading about tennis. We get we get better as we practice. You know what we practice grows stronger as we practice calming down that stress response as we practice self-compassion, as we practice more skillful communication. So those were the things that I started to see. And, you know, I still learn lessons. Like, you know, a few weeks ago, my anger came back again. I mean, my temper is is there. It's live and well. It came back again because my daughter, after a movie night, she was like a little manic and didn't want to go to bed, my nine-year-old. And she laughed at me and she was just like, and I was like, (laughs) And it was like, oh, wow, look at that. And so the attitude I take to that, and this is like the attitude really of mindfulness is this curiosity, like, oh, isn't that interesting? Look at that thing that's arising. And so when you take this attitude of, you know, kindness and curiosity to all the things that are arising, then all of these things become things to learn from and to to become more accepting of. And as we do that, we we become more grounded. And, and so it's really beautiful. But anyway, it was really interesting to say, oh, look, here's another little, little button I didn't know I had. <laughs> right. And I love what you said uh, just a little earlier about, you know, rather than getting stuck in like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? Or feeling, I don't know, beating yourself up about it. You, you decided that this is an opportunity for you to grow, right? I think that's fantastic. So how old are your kids now? They're nine and they're 12. They're, they're 12. One is nine and one is 12. Obviously. <laughs> so, okay. And they're both girls, right? Yeah. Yeah. And mine are just one year older in both cases. So 13 Aww. and 10. Yeah. Aww. Well, can I pick up on what you said about that? Like, you know, you love, well, and the thing that is really important that I really think is so important to underscore about that decision, right? To say, okay, what can I learn here Mm -hmm. is that opposite of that, right? That judgmental place of when so many of us are really hard on ourselves and really harsh and judgmental on ourselves. And that voice inside is like really mean. And we kind of have this idea from our culture that this is how you're going to sort of grow and become a better person. And that's unfortunately just not true. And you've been, you've been misled. It's not true at all. And actually they have research that verifies that Kristen Neff and her colleague from university of Austin have studied self-compassion and they've found out that it actually helps people to grow and learn and take steps. And it really makes a lot of sense if you think about it, because if you, uh, you're you trying to do something different, so you're going to do some, try some new, maybe parenting communication skills, right? And you're, you're doing something outside your comfort zone, you're going to grow and learn, and then you're human and you inevitably make a mistake. If the voice that greets you is really harsh and mean, you're going to be like, oh, I don't want to do that scary thing of trying that scary thing again, right? You're not going to want to. It's going to leave you feeling helpless, right? Like you're bad, right? For making that mistake. But if you try that scary thing and you inevitably make your mistake and you're instead practice to greet yourself with words of kindness, of compassion, put a hand on your heart, like, oh, this is hard. You're trying, you're trying something new, but it's not easy. And it's sometimes we're not good at things for a while. You know, it's like learning a new language. It's hard. You know, you offer yourself some compassion. It makes a lot of sense that if you give yourself this softer landing, you're going to say, okay, 
I can pick myself up. I can try again. I can keep going. And really that persistence and that persistent practice is how we teach ourselves and make not only self-compassion more comfortable and normal and easeful, but also any kind of new skill that we're learning. That's how we make it more comfortable and more easeful is that, yeah, we're bad at most things when we first start, but we just keep practicing. So it really is much more effective to start to offer yourself some kindness. Definitely. So you recently wrote a book And I really am excited to talk to you about that. It's called Raising Good Humans. And I'm curious, why did you choose the word good? And what does that mean to you? You know, when I think of like good humans, it's kind of when we think of our our children, I think of my children, I guess I'm not the type of person who's like success at all costs, you know, meaning monetary success at all costs. I really want them to be happy and grounded and confident and comfortable enough in their skin to be able to go and do, you know, figure out anything they need to figure out and do what they want to do in this world and to have great relationships. And that's really is the most satisfying thing in our lives, like is our relationships, of course. So Mm -hmm. if we want to raise kind, confident kids, then, you know, we, it's really interesting because the work in in so many ways is in reparenting ourselves and and becoming the model for how to be a kind, confident human in ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. But we're not, we're not raising children. We're raising them to be adults. We're raising them to be humans that are perfectly imperfect and accepting themselves for who they are. And that's really what I want, because if you have that foundation of, accepting yourself as you are, being able to, to communicate with others and have loving relationships, then you're going to be able to do whatever you want after that. You know, <laughs> that's yeah. how I feel. How much control do you think we have over, you know, how they turn out and raising these kind, confident people? That's a great question because there's so much we don't have control over. We obviously don't have control over our children, right? Like we know that when they're one and a half years old and they're starting to make their own decisions, we know that they're making independent decisions that we wouldn't have made, right? So I think a thing that we want to think about in parenting and also then there's factors of genetics and all kinds of things that we can't control in our lives. But the thing I think that is important to think about when I think about the idea of what can we control. And I talk about this in the book is that actually the best that we can hope for in a lot of ways is a good amount of influence over their lives. And I know that you've talked on this podcast before about rewards and punishment and sort of control that way and how that backfires. And what's really interesting, I think, is to realize that power and influence have an inverse relationship to each other, meaning that the more power you use, the less you will have influence. And the less you use power, the more influence you have. And so I really think that adolescence and teen rebellion that we kind of think is like so normal, you know, like when I was a 14 year old, I like left the house at nights because I was not wanting to be with my father. We think that's so normal, but I actually don't think so. I think that we have enough children now growing up and more with more skillful relationships to know that teens are 
they they rebel against the destructive parenting, you know, the discipline that that parents use. It's not against the parents themselves. It's just against these, you know, the, these discipline tactics that are all about using that power. And so, at, but then what happens as you get to be, I don't know, 14, 15, that pow- your power runs out. You can't, you know, you you can't, you know, pick up your child and push them into the car seat anymore. You know, you, you may not even be able to ground them. Maybe you can take away the car, but maybe they even have their own car. Their friends are going to pick them up, right? So we, when we make the choices to use our power, like to punish and to, to use these sort of fear tactics to control, that really backfires on us. And what, what Raising Good Humans is about is about creating that intrinsic motivation to cooperate, right? And that's the most powerful thing because then you have influence. And you know, when our kids are teenagers, they need it. It's like a scary teen world out there right now. Like I want to be able to be there and, and in the loop and connected to my teen as she gets, she turns 13 in February. Yeah. 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 We've talked a lot about, about that on this podcast, you know, that, one of the core needs that all humans have is a feeling, a sense of control over their own lives. And it's this constant balance when you're a parent of like giving them the appropriate amount of independence to make their own decisions and to have control over their own lives and make choices. And, and so I think you're right. Like the more that I do that and I still have limits and I still, mm-hmm. you know, am there to guide them, but the more control they have, the more the more connected they are and they can come to me as somebody to say oh i i made this mistake and what can i do mom and i'm there to support them as opposed to like punish or scold them in some way you know it's all about their learning and being able to accept themselves when they make a mistake it's it's uh, and i think i think parents need to be able to do that as well yeah, yeah, and I'm glad you said that because as we talk about like sort of control versus influence, there are limits you have to make, you know, and sometimes you're going to use your power, right? There's going to be some times where you're going to you know say I'm sorry, you know, if you do X, you, you know, that 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 kind of thing, but the more we can use more skillful techniques and the more we can, you know, use our influence, then the better. It's about the middle path. It's not about like hard and fast extremes. Yeah. And I really love how your book gives so, so many practical tools. I mean, you really packed a lot into the <laughs> book. You really did. And it walks parents through so many activities and exercises to practice those tools. You know, I did a podcast a while ago called Put Down the Parenting Book. And <laughs> in it, <laughs> I talked about one of, the, one of the reasons people say parenting books don't quote unquote work is that they don't do the exercises or implement the strategies that are in the book, right? Like they think that just by reading the book, they're going to be able to, I don't know, like just reading it and getting that new information feels like they're doing something. Mm -hmm. So I want to tell my listeners, before you buy this book, commit not only to reading it, but to actually doing what's in there. Because I really felt like the questions that you asked and that and the exercises that you laid out, they were super simple, clear. I mean, I'm very excited to go through and, and do them myself. So the book is basically divided into two parts. There's the first part, which is about calming your reactivity. And the second part is about skillful communication. So can you tell us a little bit about like, let's start with part one, 
calming your reactivity. And this part is pretty near and dear to my heart because I got trained in some other, all these other methods. And I, in this sort of parenting world, I would feel like, but what about step one? How do you get to that pause? Right. You know, because it's always step one pause. And it's like, well, there's a lot behind that. Yeah. So I've been studying mindfulness since I was a teenager. I knew a lot about its power because it had really sort of changed things for me in now, my how 20s. how as a teenager, yeah, like how as a teenager <laughs> do you get into that? I have no idea. You know, I, I think at some point, I was always a very, um, I'm kind of a highly sensitive person. I always kind of had these sort of like dips, real dips. And I, I don't know, I guess I discovered like the self-help section of the bookstore once and I discovered the books by someone who became my teacher, who's um, the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. And he He's written like over a hundred amazing books that are wow. just about being peace and mindfulness and everyday life that is, he, I mean, he's, he was um, nominated by Martin Luther King for a Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, an oh incredible, God. incredible leader of peace. And so I started reading and reading and, and like, you, you know, like the, like the parents you talk about, I did a lot. I read a lot and that felt really good, but I didn't do the practices. So then after about 10 years of doing that reading, I, um, I, I started to do the practices and it was really transformative. But the, what the first part is all about is basically, I think it's so important to just understand our biology, right? Like our worst moments as parents are when we're losing it. And when we're losing it, basically what's happening is that your nervous system is seeing your child as a threat. And so the seat of that stress response, that fight, flight, or freeze response in the brain, the amygdala, they will, you know, release all these hormones and basically they'll just, you know, raise your blood pressure, your muscles get tense, and, and it'll literally bypass the prefrontal cortex, higher thinking parts of your brain, your verbal ability, your empathy, your <laughs> logical thinking, all of these things you want to be able to access. It literally bypasses those. So you can just react quickly and like save everyone from the proverbial saber tooth tiger. And so it's just important to realize that this is not something we choose. This is not something we're, we've made this conscious choice to do. Like where you get so blameful about ourselves, but like no one like wakes up in the morning. It's like, hmm, I think at like five o'clock today, I'm just going to lose it on my child and scream at them. That's a good idea. No, we don't do that. This is not your choice. It's just, this is your biological stress response. And so when we understand that, we can understand that there are ways to work with this stress response. Like if you want to be able to not lose it, and have access to all your higher order thinking um, in the challenging moments, which there will be plenty of in parenting, then you have to practice and build that muscle in the other times. And happily, there are like tried and true brain hack ways to do this, which is so cool, you know, so completely side effect free, which is wonderful. <laughs> and so yeah. you can, so mindfulness is about practicing to bring your attention into the present moment with a sense with an attitude of kindness and compassion and curiosity right so you're you're trying to be curious and not judging yourself and as we practice peace we become more pretty peaceful as we sit still and we practice not reacting to all the stuff that's arising the thoughts and the feelings and all that stuff we become less reactive, right? Mm -hmm. So we develop this capacity for tolerance. And I also walk through in that first 
section, self-compassion, which we talked about, and also how to take care of our difficult feelings. Because the truth is like, our kids are going to learn from us. And if we want them to take, be able to skillfully take care of their difficult feelings, we have to be able to take care of our difficult feelings. And how many of us were taught to do that skillfully? Like, I don't know, maybe like 0.2% of the population, but basically none of us. We were all taught to just stuff them away. Stuff it or react, you know, yell and scream and yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. explode or stuff it. Right. It kind of, it walks you through this and it doesn't sound like like the funnest thing to do, but it's, this is a life skill that we need to be able to embody ourselves so that then we can help our children start to develop these skills themselves. We can't just say to our kids, here, you mindfully take care of your difficult feelings so I don't have to be so uncomfortable when you're upset. You know, right. they their, their BS meter is really high. They'll know when you're not walking the talk. So you have to practice this yourself and then that'll make you a more effective parent and that'll make you have give you access to those high, higher order parts of the brain that you want to use when you then get to want to communicate and use all those communication skills you learn in section two. So before we get to section two, I just want to ask you, so I have a friend who is like, yeah, that meditation, mindfulness stuff, that's, that's not for me, right? Like she, Mm -hmm. she, I mean, what do you say to a mom who, who doesn't want to yell at her kids? She wants to raise good humans, but she's saying like, I'm just not into that whole breathing thing, or she feels like maybe it's a waste of time because it requires her to slow down. And she's like, go, go, go. Mm. Yeah, I I know that, you know, and there's lots of different avenues towards it that are more comfortable for people like mindful walking or yoga as well. But I would also kind of, you know, and I, and there are ways to, to practice slowing down that are, are more accessible, but I would also push back against that a little bit too, because mm-hmm. the truth is, as we sit still and as we practice and we notice all this like agitation and jitteriness and all of this stuff, that's actually really a powerful practice in some way. Like as, as you notice all these things come up and you notice that you you're, you can sit still with them, you, you start to become more tolerant of them in some ways. You start to slow down, slow down that energy. It's almost like you're, you know, it's like a, there's a mud, mud stirred up in a glass of water and it just takes some time for that, that mud to settle. So what I would say is that anyone can practice. If you can, you know, breathe, you can practice. If you can focus on the sensations in your body, you can practice. And also it doesn't take that much time. You can, if you have five minutes in your day, three minutes in your day, you can practice. And then what I would say, as far as it taking a bunch of time, the idea of I'm busy, I don't have time in my life. I would push back against that too, because what's awesome about this is this practice. It's not just about making you less reactive for your your kids because it does do that. But also you get, I mean, all the studies show too, which is amazing, like clearer thinking, less anxiety, less depression, better sleep. And what I notice in my own life and the life of my clients is that you're actually much more effective and with your time 
because when you're doing something, <clears throat> you can practice to just single task and do what you're doing. I can mindfully be here <laughs> with you, Pam, for this podcast, and I'm not thinking about all the things I'm doing later. And generally, people who are going, 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 doing, 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 they're always thinking about the next thing to do and planning the next thing to do, next thing to do. And then the mind is always in the future. Mm-hmm. And what's sad about that is that when you, you never really get to a future point where you're just going to stop and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. When you get to that future point, you've trained your mind to always go and think in the future. So there it goes again. And, and sort of the poignant thing about that is that being present with our children is only available in the present moment. We right. can't be planning for the future, right? Like we can only really see them, really touch their skin, really smell them, really be curious and interested about who are they in this moment without being in the present moment, right? So if we're always going, always doing, we can't really show up for our kids in a really meaningful way. And they also, if our brain is always going and doing, when they have a problem, it's hard for us to be still enough to sit there with whatever uncomfortable feelings might come up with this problem, you know? And I don't know. So Thich Nhat Hanh, the teacher I told you about, he has a quote about this that I think is just so beautiful. And it's, when you love someone, the best thing you can offer them is your presence. How can you love if you are not there? And I just think that just sums it all up so beautifully. It still gives me goosebumps when I say that because yeah, how can you love if you are not there? Yeah. So still have my friend in my mind, like mm-hmm. thinking, what what would she want to ask right now? And I guess from what I know about mindfulness and meditation and my own experience, like it's not exactly comfortable in the beginning, right? Like it's no. hard. It's not like, I think people imagine that, oh, I'm going to do this and it's going to be amazing. But it it's not amazing in the beginning because it's a new skill and you're not used to it. And you don't exactly know how to calm your mind, right? And so I, I just want anyone who's listening, who's like, I've tried it and it doesn't work or, you know, it's too uncomfortable. Like that is part of the process, right? Yes, actually. And there's like an amazing, and I'm so glad you brought this up because yeah, like you see these pictures and, you know, you think like rainbow sparkles are going to just like shoot out their ears and like, ah, like angels are singing. Like it's not so... We're practicing to bring our attention back to the present moment every when the mind wanders. So we pick a something that we can anchor on, maybe the breath or maybe a um, sensation in the body. And then you can do that for a breath. We can try it. So let's just feel your breath maybe at your nose. Feel your breath in and feel your breath out. Okay, so you've been breathing all day long. You'd probably never felt a breath in the same way all day long. Right. You can do that for one breath and that's great. It's wonderful. And then once you get to like three breaths, your mind's like, okay, let's go off to the future. When you practice for five minutes, your mind wanders like 666 times. Like it's, well, that's maybe a bad number. <laughs> it's, I don't, it's like a, I don't know, 60,000 times maybe, you know, who knows how many times. Just like your ears are hearing your mind is thinking and that's what it does. And so the goal is not to stop your thoughts. You're going to be dead if you stop your thoughts. Mm -hmm. That's not what's happening. Instead, the goal is that when you notice your mind has wandered, you come back to attention on the breath. And so you might realize, oh, I've been thinking about this interview I'm going to do later. (laughs) 
<laughs> for like five minutes, but that's okay. It's totally normal. It's what happens. And when you do that, that's when you're like kind of doing the rep of the muscle, you know, like building the muscle and you're, and you, and that's the golden moment. And in fact, in the mindfulness tradition, they have a, a word or they have a term about this. They call it noble failure <laughs> because it's a part of the process is that everybody has this fe- this feeling of, you know, that, oh, wow, who knew my brain was this crazy, boing, yes. boing, boing all over the place. Like everybody's brain is like that. They call it monkey mind for a reason. And, but that's okay when you're sitting in your meditation and your brain is a little crazy and then maybe you have some anxiety that arises and then oh, the whole thing ends and you're like, whoa. Gosh, you don't look to the what the practice is for the whether how it's affecting your life. You look at like how it's affecting the rest of your life. And what I find with my clients is often their partner is often the first one to say, You've been so much calmer lately. Oh, what's going on? Mm. But you kind of have to give it a few months. You know, it's like, you know, doing tricep dips at the gym. Like you need to give it some time before you're going to see any kind of results. Okay. Well, that's really good to know. Um, you know, because I think people wonder like, how, how long is this going to take for me to notice some effects? And I also, I'm glad you brought up the partner or the spouse. So let's say a mom comes to you and she wants to learn about this stuff. How important is it for their spouse or their partner to also be doing some kind of mindfulness practice? Well, they don't have to be congruently doing the same thing, not at all. Sometimes people are, and then that's great. You know, you can kind of help each other and bounce off each other and magnify the work, you know, in the, in the mindful parenting membership. Sometimes I have people, spouses come on together and that's really exciting. It's because I know some moms who are like, well, I'm trying to do this, but my, but my husband, you know, he still yells at the kids. And so Mm -hmm. she feels really frustrated that she's the only one, let's say. Yeah. Um, And that happens, that happens a lot. And so what I would say to that is that you have to kind of almost like with your children become the model of what you want to see, right? So as you start to make some shifts in yourself, as you start to shift in yourself, and maybe you start to have closer relationships with your children, what usually ends up happening is that the spouse is like, so what are you doing? Right. <laughs> you know, like, and they're noticing there's this better relationship and that, that can start the shift. But what I would caution people against is do not try to force your partner to yeah. change. You can have conversations. You can talk about what you're learning, but don't try to force them to change. In fact, you just being the example and being the model is really the best way. And, and really like, when you know that words and threats push your children away and are actually counterproductive in the long run, when you know that yelling triggers your child's fight, flight, or freeze response, so they actually cannot learn anything in that moment, when you know all that stuff, you can't just unknow it. Sorry. And you, have, you know, you, then you have to start making different choices and, and making choices that are more compatible with your, your own heart and mind. Yeah. So let's talk about the second section of the book, which is about communicating more effectively or more skillfully. Yes. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe you could give, 
an example or two. I mean, I know there's a, there's a part in there about like barriers to communication or I don't know, you can choose whatever, but I just want to give listeners like one specific thing that they can take away from one of the sections in that part of the book. When we're kind of looking at skillful communication from the big picture kind of point of view, which is more what we can do kind of here in this format, um, I think it's really important to kind of just put yourself in the shoes of your child and how you might feel if you were being talked to the way, you know, you talk to your child or other people talk to children. And so what really ends as if we start to do that, we can start to see that kids are being ordered around all day long, like commands issued at them, do this, put on your shoes, brush your teeth, do the thing, right? And so what happens is, and what happens for all of us, what we've forgotten is that we all kind of bristle and chafe against commands. You know, if your partner came in the house, came in the door to the house and said, go get dinner ready. I mean, can you imagine? You'd be like, excuse me. Right. <laughs> what do you, who do you think you are? But we forget because that language is so common in our culture, we forget that that's how all human beings, even really small human beings, kind of feel at that kind of language. So, orders and threats, while they can, might appear to kind of like quote unquote work in the short run, they really tend to make kids feel resentful, build up resentment over time, and actually feel, be less likely to voluntarily cooperate with you. So in fact, right. they're, they're counterproductive, right? Yeah. So it's, it's not so skillful. So, and also I'm thinking about, cause I, I don't know if you know this, I'm a school counselor. Mm. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about when you're saying ordering and I see kids on the playground, you know, ordering each other around and bossing each other and trying to tell them what to do. And, I think about how that's what they're getting at home all the time. And then they, they want to do that to somebody else because it feels terrible to them to be bossed around all the time. So then they go and they try to boss somebody else around, you know, and, and that, yeah. that can cause social problems and friendship issues and things like that. So and we talked earlier about when we both noticed our older daughter kind of talking in the same way to the younger daughter. And yeah, so that they live what they learn. Exactly. I mean, that's what you probably also know then about bullying, right? And threatening is that kids who have been or bullying uh, have been bullied in their life, right? Mm -hmm. And if that's what we learn, right? If we, we want to think about what is our parenting teaching our kids? Like, is it teaching them like in Raising Good Humans, the idea is that we work together to meet everyone's needs, right? We get everyone's needs met. Or is it teaching them that the one with the most power wins, you know, and then that's what they end up enacting in the other parts of their life, that the one with the most power wins. And really, one of the best things we can give our kids is that the social emotional ability to like work with others. I mean, if you look at what, you know, in fact, monetary success, like people who run companies and, and um, work with tons of people, like that's what they need most is the ability to communicate with others, to work well with others, to see what are your needs, what are my needs, and how to solve problems in that way and not do what I say or else I'm going to do this to you. And it's so hard because we just go into parenting. We have no training. We have no help. And then our kids are just like magnets for, you know, the to no, 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 and not wanting to do what you say. And you have, you feel like you are responsible for everything they do. And 
And the truth is you're actually kind of more responsible to them. You're responsible to how you show up. And, and you want to think of that, you know, if you yell, they'll yell back. If you, if you, if you threaten them, they'll threaten. If you use kind language, if you use respectful language, that's what they're going to learn too. And yeah, they're going to be immature and they're going to be unskillful because that's what kids are. That's the definition. They're immature. If you continually practice to use more respectful language, more skillful language, compassionate language, even while holding boundaries, then that's what they're going to ultimately learn. So, so this is about giving us, this second section is about kind of giving us the language that most of us weren't raised with. Okay. So one of the parts that I read was about telling us, like you have a strategy about telling a story. I think that actually this was in the part about helping kids with their difficult feelings. Mm-hmm. Am I right? So can yeah. you, can you talk a little bit about that strategy? Cause I, I thought that was, that one was really good. Oh yeah. I love that strategy. I'm pretty sure I got it from um, Dr. Daniel Siegel okay. and um, he's an incredible author and psychologist who's been on my podcast a couple of times. He's a great, great person. What he talks about is that in the brain, we have the sort of verbal parts of our brain and um, what happens for kids when they get dysregulated and they can't handle stuff? Well, let me just take a step back and say that if your kid is like really dysregulated and having a full on out tantrum, there's not much you can do in that moment. So let's right. just like kind of put down the parenting book, put right. down the strategies and just kind of work on breathing and keeping yourself grounded and keeping them safe. But sometimes we are, our brains are so attuned to stories and kids are so attuned to stories. So sometimes when children are becoming dysregulated for something, they can, um, you can tell them the story of what has happened and it starts to get engaged the verbal part of their brain and reintegrate their brain and calm them down beautifully. And this happened for me um, with my daughter. We had gone on a you know, like seven hour car ride to my parents' house in Rhode Island, which is like a long day. And we'd woken up really early. And then during the day, what had happened is like my, my grandfather who lived with my parents had gotten sick or something happened and my parents had to like leave and go to him. When we got there, the house was empty. Grammy and Grampy weren't there. Plans were changing by the minute of, as to where people were going to be staying and when and all that stuff. And it was just all too much for my Mm -hmm. child. Mm -hmm. And she took a shower, which helps her feel better. But then I don't know if we had been talking through the shower door or something, but then she just started crying as she like got out of the shower. And I just went in and I put my arm around her and I said, Oh, this morning, I told her the story of her day. This morning, we woke you up and it was dark outside and you had to get in the car. And then you, we listened to stories in the car and then Grammy, the, the, you know, I just told her, her her story of the day and she just listened and she j- just stopped crying. And it was almost like, it was like a processing moment that I did for her and that she I listened love that. to. And then I she was fine. It was so cool. <laughs> yeah. Now had you like, you learned that from Dan and then you, yes. you remembered and put it into practice. Okay. That's so great. I'm going to have to try that for sure. Yeah. Okay. Powerful. And it's kind of the same as almost like journaling for ourselves, telling ourselves the story kind of gets that verbal part of the brain back on and, and has us get kind of stepping back and thinking more clearly about things. 
Awesome. Is there anything else that you want to share from your book before we wrap it up? I mean, there's so many good things in there. And I mean, this is this is the less drama, more mama podcast. So like, I mean, I think it all relates perfectly with, you know, what we talk about here. Um, is there anything else you want to you want to leave us with? I guess I would kind of pull out some things in the very last chapter. Okay. Um, I talk about some ways to simplify and support your peaceful home. And I talk about simplifying things like clutter, toys, and schedules, because it makes a huge difference to be able to focus on what really matters if you're not overwhelmed by all of those things. And kids work and live at a a pace that is slower than ours especially today, especially at the pace that a lot of us are moving at. And it causes stress on them to be have to go from one thing to the next, to have back-to-back classes or mm-hmm. back-to-back playdates or parties or even you know, not enough downtime, not enough time for free and open play, especially for young kids. So I would just encourage you to think about some ideas about where you can think about how are your activities and your lifestyle? How are those contributing to your stress? And maybe how are they contributing to your children's stress? And I think that's a point to sort of bring to the forefront because uh, especially as we move into kind of the holiday season, as we're recording this, simplifying, reducing really helps us focus on what's really important. Yeah, I love that. I I work with thinking right as you're talking about a couple of kids that I see at the school, who, you know, eight years old, and they have not one, but two after school activities a day. And they are just exhausted, and emotional. And when I talked to the mom about it, it was like, well, but they want to do it, they love to do it. And yes, but they can do all those things, just not at the same time. It's okay for your kids to be upset about not doing everything they want to do all the time. Mm -hmm. Because their physical and mental well being is more important. Like, so just, you know, pick a couple of things every school year, every semester, you know, to, to focus on and leave the rest. Like it's okay. (laughs) Amen. I'm with you sister. And then it's interesting, actually, like I'm kind of learning that as they get older, you know, as they turn, as they come become teenagers, that's really when their, their brains are becoming more chaotic and they need more structure. They need in some ways more activities. And also because teens these days aren't moving very much at all, they're sitting still in front of screens. You know, we need to kind of play that parental card and get them moving and into activities. So it's kind of interesting, you know, we want to give a lot of kids by the time they're teens, they're burnt out of their sport. They don't want to do it anymore. Um, which is why, yeah, doing it when they become teens keeps them out of trouble. It's healthy for them. And, you know, in my opinion, a much better time to start that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. So I hope this has given you dear listeners, some, something to chew on, some things to think about. It's great. So, I want you to tell people where they can find you. You have an amazing podcast and um, tell us what it's called and where else we can find you. You can find me in the book and the podcast at mindfulmamamentor.com. And the podcast is called the Mindful Mama Podcast. And you can find it everywhere you listen to podcasts. But everything is at mindfulmamamentor.com. I'll link to everything in the show notes, of course. And also... We are going to be doing a book giveaway. 
Woohoo! So please uh, go to Instagram and my account is Less Drama Mama, which I'll link to also. And we will have instructions there for how you can enter. So cool. So Get a copy. So much. <laughs> Raise good humans. Okay, everybody. Thank you so much, Hunter. It was awesome talking to you. Thank and you so much, Pam. You're welcome. And I'll talk to everybody else next week. Thank you for listening to the Less Drama, More Mama podcast. If you like this episode, please take a moment to write a quick review on iTunes and make sure you subscribe too so you never miss a show. Got a question, comment, or idea for an upcoming episode? Email me at pam at lessdramamoremama.com.